This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and thank you for joining me as always. Super excited to be joined second consecutive year by special guests from CBS Sports. It is Mr. Dave Richard. Dave, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I love talking about this rookie class. It's such an interesting group. There, There's obviously a consensus at the top. Everybody knows it. It's Zach Charbonnet. He's just so amazing. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Maybe it's not. Uh, but it is an interesting rookie class. Right down to the quarterbacks. I, I think that there's a lot to get through. And we've been talking about these guys for months. We've now had the privilege of seeing how they look, most of them anyway, a week into training camp. I, I'm wondering how much that has changed opinion, just one week into camp and on some of these players for you, Paul, and for me. I'm going to keep that in mind as we go along. Is there anybody who's changed just after one week of camp in our minds? When I think of someone, if I think of someone, I'll bring it up on the show. Yeah, sounds good. Then you mentioned kind of the quarterbacks, and let's just start there because obviously a lot, a lot of noise going on in Indianapolis over the last couple of days with the Jonathan Taylor saga and how that might, you know, change the narrative a little bit with Anthony Richardson. So let's kind of bring up Anthony Richardson. I do feel like he's a pretty polarizing player. Some people have him really high in the redraft ranks. Some people a little bit more hesitant as a rookie. Some obviously, you know, development needed in terms of the pass game. Where do you kind of sit on Anthony Richardson for this year? Maybe now with the idea of no Jonathan Taylor there, how much has that changed the narrative in terms of even more rushing capabilities? And, and then in the big picture, like a dynasty setting, you you look at a guy like Richardson and say, his ceiling could be really high in a couple of years. So he should be kind of really pretty high up there. Obviously not in that like top five, top six, top seven group. But does he offer a ceiling right after that elite, elite level group that we have? I mean, I know that a couple of years ago, Jalen Hurts was starting for Philadelphia and his accuracy wasn't that great. And yet he still finished as a top 12 quarterback his first year as a starter. And then we all saw what he did as a second year as a starter. And I think that that's what everybody's kind of using as a measuring stick for Anthony Richardson. And he might not be quite as good. He's certainly not as good of a thrower as Jalen Hurts was in his first year as a starter. But he might be as good, if not better, of a runner than Hertz was in that first year of him, Hertz being a starter. And that's not what you got to bank on in fantasy. We've seen it time and again. Quarterbacks who run, where it's a big part of their offensive game plan, man, they rack up so many points for fantasy. It's a stat game. It's not about how pretty the ball looks coming off your hand. And it's not about, well, it is kind of about how many points you score. But it's it's about how many yards you get. And that's something that NFL teams don't really care about as much. They know they need yards to get near the end zone and then to score. But fantasy managers care about those yards. And I think Richardson's going to be in line to get a lot of those yards, which is why I'm one of those bullish analysts on Anthony Richardson, where I am ready to take him as a top 12 or top 10 type of fantasy quarterback, where I would take him with a top 100 pick. And what makes that easier for me, Paul, is knowing that there are so many veteran quarterbacks that are, you know, they're 30 to 39 years old. They're still playing in the league. They're still starters in the league. And they still are capable of getting between 20 and 22 fantasy points. I can draft one of them after I take Anthony Richardson 
And I might even start one of them in week one instead of Anthony Richardson, but it just safeguards me in case Anthony Richardson struggles or doesn't run or gets benched for Gardner Minshew for a few weeks. Ultimately, I think Jonathan Taylor will be in Indianapolis. I'm not ready to start thinking about life without JT in Indianapolis, but I do think that Anthony Richardson will take work away from him. I think it'll make Taylor more efficient of a runner, but make no mistake about it, man. I wouldn't be surprised if Richardson ended up with six or seven touchdowns on his own, probably close to a thousand yards on the ground on his own. It's the passing numbers that everybody's going to get scared of, and they're not going to be great, but he should still do enough through the air and on the ground to be a good fantasy quarterback most weeks with the occasional spike week along the way. Yeah, I know you said you mentioned you're not ready to think about the Colts without Jonathan Taylor, but one question on that front. Sure. You could I could I could understand somebody's stance either way. With Jonathan Taylor, offense is better. He's a great player, maybe more red zone or touchdown opportunities for Anthony Richardson. On the flip side, no Jonathan Taylor might mean Anthony Richardson's even gonna run more this year and more touchdown opportunities. If sure. you play that what if scenario, Jonathan Taylor not there. Do you stand more on you think it would hurt Richardson or help Richardson when we're just talking about those fantasy stats? Well, you'd be crazy to think that if Taylor's not there, the Colts are going to go into the season with just Deion Jackson and Evan Hull and uh, and Zach Moss on IR for the first six weeks or whatever it is, four weeks, however long it takes them to come back from this broken forearm. There are enough veteran running backs out there looking for a gig that they could just sign one of them. And that running back would then take over and be just a, a low-rent version of Jonathan Taylor. It would make sense that Kareem Hunt could be that guy because we've seen Kareem Hunt, not the same guy that he once was, but he can still catch passes out of the backfield. They could use him in a multitude of roles. It would be a good opportunity for Kareem Hunt to at least play a lot. I don't know about getting a lot of numbers. But yeah, I think that Richardson would have to shoulder the load for the offense. He did something like that at Florida last year. I'm sure he'd be okay with it, and I'm sure he would do his best to make as many plays as he could, and it would help that he's got a couple of gargantuan targets to throw to in Pittman, in Alec Pierce, in Jelani Woods. Uh, I don't know what you can expect from Josh Downs in his rookie year, but he could help too. Uh, yeah, it would obviously mean probably more throwing for Richardson, which means more volume, and that would lead to more numbers for him in that regard. I think it would be okay if Richardson is there without Jonathan Taylor and with a lesser running back, a less effective running back anyway. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's spin this to the other two quarterbacks, uh, CJ Shroud and Bryce Young, the other two guys who went you know, towards the top of the draft. Any clear preference from either a redraft perspective based on what you might expect this year? That would be obviously more for like two quarterback leagues. You know, if one might be a little bit more intriguing than the other. And do you have a clear preference in terms of dynasty, or do you kind of see them similar that maybe their ceiling even in dynasty is a good low-end QB1, QB9, QB8, to QB12 if everything hit? Or do you think there's a ceiling long-term for one of them that maybe is even higher than that? I don't think there's a ceiling higher than that. I think they would both be lucky to finish anywhere between QB10 and QB12 on a regular basis in fantasy. I like Young better than Stroud, mainly because of the landing spot. I loved Stroud's film. I thought that he was an excellent thrower, stood in there when pressure was on, and he made great plays. But I'm worried about how quickly Houston's going to find targets for him over the course of the next several years. I, I think that Young already has a couple of okay targets now this year, and some of them he can grow with. And just the fact that he was able to go right into Carolina, and this is the first week of training camp, 
look like Bryce Young from Alabama, where he was making improvisational plays, um, throwing good deep balls along the way. Didn't seem like the moment was too big for him, and he wasn't splitting first-team reps with Davis Mills. So it's just pretty clear to me that Bryce Young is probably on a slightly better trajectory than C.J. Stroud. But if if, if we're picking it, picking between the two of them in Dynasty, I think it's really close. I would take Young first, but I would say if if you let Stroud slide to you in your QB or your rookie-only drafts, whether it's one QB or two QB, you're probably going to feel just fine about it. I don't think he's got as much. I don't think either of them have much bust potential, but I don't think either one of them have a huge ceiling either. Not as huge as Richardson's anyway. Yeah, because I mean, as we've seen over the last you know handful of years, the quarterback position fantasy, the top end guys for the most part, not all of them. Barrow doesn't run too much, but a little bit. Same thing with Mahomes. Usually to get that high, high ceiling, you either got to be highly prolific, 40 touchdowns or more, or you got to have that running component. And CJ Stroud doesn't have the running component. Bryce Young's a little bit more athletic, didn't really have to use it too much at Alabama. I don't think he's going to be much more than a couple hundred yards on the ground as well. So I'm right there with you. I think what you said, QB 10, QB 12, I think that's probably their ceiling. And that would probably come with like a 35 or 32 or 34 type touchdown throwing season to get there. And I think and now is in the league where we are right now, I don't think that would be enough to push you up to that, you know, that next level or that next tier. So it's kind of an interesting uh, with that, even though those guys are more pro ready than a guy like Anthony Richardson, the ceiling just without that running component, you know, leaves them a little bit further behind. Let's spin this over to the running backs. And I'll mention the guys like Charbonnet momentarily, which is a little bit of an interesting wrinkle. Uh, let's start at the top with B. John and where you sit in terms of, I think the, I think the argument is very strong that probably in dynasty based on age, pedigree, talent, he's probably RB1 just because of the nature of the position. But where do you sit this year in redraft? I see people having this high three. I see some people a little bit lower. Where do you kind of stand up, B. John, for, for this upcoming year? Uh, would Where would you take when the running back packing order? And are there a lot of wide receivers you take before him or just the elite top like three, four guys? It's the elite guys. I've got him sixth in full PPR. That's sixth overall. Okay. And third overall in non-PPR. So... Jumping in with two feet on Bijan Robinson being an elite fantasy running back. And it's no surprise, dude, that the these look good for the Falcons right off the jump. He was such a clean prospect from Texas, was able to do just about anything that they asked him to do. The advanced metrics were outstanding on him. He's just he, he's he's just all around a terrific football player who just happens to play the running back position and, and that is one that is obviously a little controversial these days, and a lot of people think that that position doesn't really matter. I think it matters when you've got a guy like Robinson. And if he does what we think he's capable of doing, and we've seen the sample size from his days at Texas, combined with what the Falcons were really good at last year, they ran the ball a ton, they did a great job with it, they have a great offensive line, Arthur Smith is proving to be a tremendous play caller, I, I think the sky's the limit. And, and we've seen it now. Over the last 15 years, there have been seven running backs who have been drafted with a top 10 pick. Of those seven, five have gone on to finish top 10 in PPR points per game. I think only two of them got over 20 PPR points per game. But I think that we're talking about Bijan being one who could be the next to get over 20 PPR points per game. Just an unbelievable upside because of where he is. The offense that he's in, the fact that they're going to lean on him so much, the fact that they're going to target him so much, 
and the fact that they're going to be able to have him score plenty of touchdowns on the season. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I haven't done, done any of my you know upcoming redraft leagues yet for this year, but I feel like I'm going to, if I'm not picking in that like top four or five range, I feel like I'm going to have a lot of B. John Robinson if he's falling you know, to 10, 11, 12, because I'm willing to take him where you, where you were talking about. Or, and it just doesn't seem like that's where he's going in best ball. I know best ball's a little bit different than redraft, but it seems like in best ball drafts, it's ADP is hovering more of like that latter part of round one. And I'm surprised by that because I think in 365 days, if we're having this conversation again, I think it's going to be clear that B. John Robinson is, is the first running back taken in redraft next year. I'd be very surprised if he's not the first running back taken. And now it would mean he probably had a great year this year. So, like, I'm I'm willing to buy that. Just like when Ezekiel Elliott was a rookie, just like when Saquon was a rookie. You know, I think I think people are overly worried about Tyler Algier because he had a good rookie year. But you don't make that investment be John Robinson and not think that he's going to get 20 touches on average, I think, most weeks. I think and Algier why, mixed in. Why did Algier have a good rookie year? scheme offensive line and now you're set now you're replacing the bulk of that work with a guy who exponentially more talented and skilled so like yeah. to me it's a no-brainer I'm, I'm i've been very surprised what i've been seeing adp in basketball drafts like i love stefan Diggs, i love some of these other high-end wide receivers but i'm surprised they're going ahead of b john robinson and i i think i think that's going to be a mistake by the time this season plays itself out i i my guess is some of those teams, like the best ball mania, a lot of things go into them. But I, I bet there's some really good teams are going to be the ones that end up getting B. John latter part of round one, then coming around the second round, maybe getting a high-end wide receiver there. Uh, let's take this to Jameer Gibbs, because I think he is a little bit more uncertainty there. There's definitely a little bit of a discrepancy between PPR, maybe not PPR, half PPR. What do you what do you view for Jameer Gibbs in the short term? Are you overly worried about David Montgomery? Are you buying in the player because the Lions were so aggressive in wanting him? What's your take on Jameer Gibbs as obviously the second best rookie running back this year, uh, but in terms of how heavily you would want to invest in? I wouldn't go crazy over Gibbs, but the one thing that keeps gnawing away at my brain, Paul, is that over the last three years, DeAndre Swift averaged at least... 13 PPR points per game in this Lions offense. There was one year where he was over 50. And this he Gibbs is taking over that role. So I can't sit here and say, well, he's only going to be just okay because Montgomery's going to take touchdowns, which I think he will. And Montgomery's going to dominate carries, which he, if he doesn't, then Jameer Gibbs is really, really good. And what I'm about to say won't even matter. But this is a Lions offense that's found a way to utilize the running back out of the backfield and get them targets. And Gibbs is now going to get them. Clearly, there are things that this coaching staff and this front office loved about Jameer Gibbs so that they spent, and what was it, 12th overall yeah. on Jameer Gibbs? Yeah, like a super high pick to get him. So they obviously had exact intentions on what they wanted to do with him, and they weren't the only team that was interested in getting him at that type of range either. They're just the first one that had the chance to squeeze the trigger on it. And I'm going to tell you, I think Gibbs is a great talent. I Here's here's what bothers me. There's, there's, there's three things that I've talked about that hold me back on just saying, all right, Gibbs is going to be up there with uh, Bijan or, or maybe around behind Bijan. Um, he was never a feature back at Alabama or Georgia Tech. So those are two separate colleges, two separate staffs that never gave him a full workload. 
He played just 54% of the snaps in 2022 for Alabama. He doesn't have a physical element to his game. Follow along with me on this stat here, Paul. Maybe the, Hopefully this makes sense to you. He had 2.2 yards per carry when he was hit two yards or closer to the line of scrimmage on his runs. Okay, so you can think about that in two ways. Number one, when he's running between the tackles, defender was there to meet him. As soon as the defender hit him, Gibbs rarely broke that for a big gate. Same thing when he hit the edges. That includes when he hits the edges. Someone's there within two yards of that line of scrimmage. And believe me, he's fast. It didn't happen all the time. But it stopped him from getting a lot of yardage um, just overall. The other thing that really stops me, and this is the one thing that I think every fantasy manager would would understand, say, okay, we're, we're happy to let this go for this year for now, is that he had six carries inside the five-yard line in 31 college games. One carry every five games inside the five? That's that's something in the profile that doesn't make me happy when it comes to Gibbs, and we know that that's something that David Montgomery can excel in, especially in the Lions offense that just got Jamal Williams to 17 touchdowns last season, many of them from a couple of yards out. So you've got to worry about those factors, but I still think he can catch four balls a game, five balls per game. He can get 70 or 80 yards on those plays. You know he's going to score some breakaway touchdowns along the way. So I've got him in that round four range, Um, and I believe it's early round four. I can double-check my rankings while I've got you here. Uh, 41st overall, ahead of Travis Etienne, ahead of Kenneth Walker, ahead of Damian Pierce, um, ahead of Alexander Madison, ahead of DK Metcalf, ahead of Amari Cooper. I, I think he's worth taking the chance on there because the track record for this role in this line's offense has been pretty good when the running back has been there and has been healthy, and he's a good talent on top of that. Yeah, I think those stats that you just laid out is is part of the reason, and I didn't have those stats when, you know, in the pre-draft process, I didn't really, you know, utilize those stats, but I think those stats tell the story of why I didn't love the Alvin Kamara cops. It was a 15-pound weight differential between these two players. Kamara was almost 215 coming out. Kamara has great contact balance to break tackles. Uh, I get, I understood why people used it because of the utilization as a receiver and a runner, but I didn't like that comp. I actually like earlier career Austin Eckler comp more than I, more than I, I like Alvin Kamara just because I thought the, the, the sides frame was more comparable to Austin Eckler, uh, than I thought Alvin Kamara. So I think those stats do a good job of alluding to some of the concerns, but also obviously talking about the positives and why his ceiling is so high as well. I think, I think spot on right there. Let me open it up to, to the, the last running back question because there's a lot of ways you can go with this. Redraft and Dynasty, you can kind of take it two ways here. Okay. We got Charbonnet, obviously injured right now. Kenneth Walker there was also injured right now, but we, we know they used the second-round pick last year on Walker and then another one this year. We got, you know, Kendra Miller. Alvin Kamara probably going to be suspended for a little bit. They just signed Jamal Williams. Devin A-Chain. Going to that Miami backfield. Maybe Cook going to the Jets, but maybe he still ends up in Miami. Uh, Ty J. Spears got the durability, long-term concerns. Derrick Henry still there right now. How do you make sense of that next group of running backs? Do you have one or two for redraft and one or two for dynasty that you're like, these are the guys that I'd be more intrigued with in that next group of running backs from this rookie class? None that I would really throw my weight behind and say, these are guys you got to target. Um, 
Uh, I think Devon A. Chain is barely in my top 100. Uh, I do like his potential in this Dolphins offense. I think he's a great fit for the running scheme that Mike McDaniel uses. I think that eventually, look, Jeff Wilson, Reem Mostert, Wilson's a quality running back. Mostert's still one of the faster guys in the league. One of them's 27. The other's 31 years old. I can't help but think that they could both incur some injuries that would kickstart A-Chain into a prominent role. He got off to a slow start in training camp. Since then, last couple of days down here in South Florida, he's looked a little bit better. He's put on a little bit more weight without necessarily taking away anything from his speed. I don't like it when running backs gain weight once they're in the league for a while, but it's a little bit different when they're just now coming into the league. It's almost like something that's necessary for them. And I think A-Chain might be able to develop into a, a good enough low-end RB2 type of fantasy running back. Don't see him being a sensational stud where he's going to go and, and do what Christian McCaffrey did in San Francisco when he went there in the second half of last season. But who's to say he can't do what Elijah Mitchell did a couple of years ago? Mitchell, unheralded running back, sixth-round pick, but a good fit for the 49ers offense, got an opportunity, took off with it, continued to do well with it. 49ers used him until they couldn't because he kept getting hurt. And then they got Christian McCaffrey, and now Mitchell's going to look at like six carries a game. I think A-Chain might be able to have a better trajectory than that. He's got to stay healthy in order to do it. That's something that's kind of plagued him a little bit over the course of his career. But I think too many people are focusing on how small he is, and they're not really thinking about how fast he is, how he was used at A&M, how he can be a good running back in the Dolphins offense or in any offense if he gets the opportunity. So for me, I'm willing to be patient with him making that opportunity on both fronts. I think in Dynasty, it's a lot easier to be patient with A-Chain. You don't have to use him now. But I think he could end up being someone that the Dolphins end up leaning on uh, middle of the season, late in the season, when you know the, the bumps and bruises that Wilson and, and Mostert get, and they have gotten them. I mean, they were both hurt last year. They're both hurt almost every year. A-Chain's going to be there to take their role away. And he should have some awesome plays along with it. So I'm happy to get him on my fantasy bench. Yeah, A-Chain is a guy that I'm right there with you. I have less concerns about the size and the frame because I just think I think the that offense, Mike McDaniel, I think they know what they want out of him. I think they're mostly going to want to use him in space, use him on the perimeter in the run game. And I think we're we're in a world now that, yeah, if he eventually gets 10, 11 rushes and two to four catches, let's say, I think I think I think the odds of one of them not being a big play is very small for his size. I mean, for his speed, for his big playability, and that offense where teams are going to have to spend so many so many resources worried about Waddle and and Tyree Kill, and then you had a good play caller on top of that, just having those speed guys. I think if he's a guy who eventually gets twelve or thirteen touches, however they amount to that, he's going to be a guy that could produce that low end RB two. He was my RB three pre draft. He's my RB3 of the rookies post-draft. I I like him a lot. I'm right there with you. Let's take this over to the pass catchers because I I think that's really interesting. I've been asking every single person that's came on recently. Jason Tsunijibu was my clear number one in this class, but I'm very surprised at where his redraft value is in relation to his now current teammate, Tyler Lockett. Where do you stand on that? I haven't really done a lot of best bowl yet this year. You know, you know, busy with family life. It has kept it to probably more of an August thing for me. So I'm probably going to try to dip in 
in August. But when I see Jackson Smith and Jacob going when I had a Tyler Lockett, that's not something I'm, I'd be comfortable with in year one. Where do you kind of stand on that? Do you think he could have a really strong rookie year? And if so, should we, should we be all investing in Geno Smith as well? These are good questions. I think he can have a strong rookie year, but I think it's going to take the Seahawks passing game taking a step that it's never taken before. We've known Pete Carroll to preach the run game, to stick with the ground and pound and you know give, give the defense a chance to rest. I am getting the sense between how good Smith and Najibba has looked in the first week of camp and what's going on with their running backs currently that the Seahawks might pivot to doing something that they've never done before. And that's let, let their quarterback throw 600-plus passes per game. It's rare when Russ did it. I think he did it once, Paul. I could double-check it if you really wanted me to. No, we're good. Yeah. But uh, you know Pete Carroll's reputation. Everybody listening knows Pete Carroll's reputation. And so the only way that it's going to work where all three of the receivers end up doing well for fantasy is if all of their targets increase. I could very easily see a heavy concentration where Metcalf, Lockett, and JSN all get a lot of targets. Could be in the neighborhood of seven per game. Really could. Because I think that they just won't have the run game that they're used to having, and they've got a dominant passing game. With an offensive line, I might add, that now has a year of experience under its belt. They had two rookies playing on that line for the majority of the season. They're going to be a little bit stronger up front. It, it makes me excited. And then you dovetail that with why the Seahawks drafted Smith and the Jigba in the first place. And just such a talented wide receiver. You didn't need to see it in 2022. Uh, and that's good because we didn't see it in 2022. But slot ready, um, separator in his routes, really good hands. It's going to cause a lot of problems for every defense that Seattle plays this year. Because how do you cover all three of these? It was already a problem covering Metcalf and Lockett. And now an area that was kind of locked up in Seattle. They tried so many different ways to unlock it last year. They used multiple tight ends. They used other wide receivers. They really couldn't get it done. Now they've gotten it done with Smith and Jigba underneath. And so if teams play a lot of cover two, Smith and Jigba is going to go off. If teams play a lot of cover one and try and take away the middle of the field, you're going to see those downfield shots for both Metcalf and Lockett. I don't see anything where if all three receivers stay healthy, JSN outproduces Lockett. I just don't see it. I, I'm I'm giving Lockett a lot of credit. He's outperformed Metcalf each of the last two seasons on a per-game basis in PPR and in non-PPR. So it's hard for me to say that that's going to be the guy who suffers because Smith and the Jigba is there. And it's hard for me to say that Metcalf's going to suffer when he's such a dominant perimeter receiver and red zone threat. So the only other option that I see is if that run game stalls early, you're going to see a lot of throwing from Geno Smith. And I know that a year ago at this time, that sentence sounded crazy. We wouldn't have wanted that. Now, dude, I kind of want that. And that could lead to Smith and the Jigba being worth. I know his, his ADP is it's rising like crazy. I don't even know if it's round eight anymore. It might be round seven. I can't go there with it. That's too far. I'm not going to get a lot of it. But if I can find him in round eight or if I'm drafting with a lot of like-minded people who would consider him in round nine, I'll, I'll jump on him. I'll take that chance. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you. And, you know, you mentioned before when we, you know, when Anthony Richardson, if you get him and then get a veteran quarterback to go with him, I think like a pairing of Anthony Richardson and Geno Smith, like that would be a beautiful, again, it depends on how the, the, the ADP works out. But like a duo like that, because I, I do think Geno is still, there's, there's still some question marks about if last year was a little flukish. I know, especially in New York, you know, people are still like, eh, I don't know if that, you know, maybe it was just this one year you know, Mirage, and that's not really who he is. But I think with the offense who is set up, and like you're talking about, if they're going to change the philosophy and they're going to go more towards this past offense, I think Geno becomes a really good value uh, in terms of if, if after you get past those elite, elite quarterbacks as a guy who might really be able to produce high numbers this year. Uh, from the other round one guys, Clinton Johnson, Jordan Addison, and Zay Flowers, is there one you're most excited about in their scenario for redraft? And the guy who you're most excited about in redraft, would that also be the one you're most excited about long-term in Dynasty from that trio? So my favorite wide receiver in redraft is Addison, because I think he's got I think he's got an even clearer path to seven targets per game. I think he can top a thousand yards playing with Justin Jefferson, by the way. Uh in a Minnesota offense, you want to talk about what would teams do. I don't think the Vikings are going to do the opposite of what the Seahawks are going to do and say, well, now that we've got Alexander Madison on the field, let's just run the ball 35 times per game. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. You're going to see the Vikings continue to be one of the teams in the NFL with the highest pass rate. That's good for Addison. That's good for Justin Jefferson. Really, this is the only way that Addison can be a factor in fantasy because we know that Justin Jefferson's going to continue to command 10-plus targets per game. He was almost at 11 targets per game last year. And now with Adam Thielen not there, Thielen was getting seven targets per game. So it's easy to just take those targets, drop them right in Addison's lap. He's a much shiftier, much faster version than Adam Thielen is at this point. Makes perfect sense in the world that he could be. He's the safer bet to be a number three wide receiver with an outside shot of trickling into the number two range. So for this year, I would take Addison as the top wide receiver ahead of JSN, ahead of all the other rookie wide receivers. Um, I, I think he's got that, but I think that's his ceiling every year. I think every year his ceiling is going to be 70 to 75 catches, 1,000 yards, six touchdowns. As long as Jefferson's there, it's never going to get better than that. And so I almost put him at the bottom of my wide receiver list in Dynasty because I'd rather have Smith and Ajibu, who I think can become eventually the number one receiver in Seattle without question. And I, I love Zay Flowers' game, and I love the situation that, that uh, Johnston's in in L.A. with Justin Herbert. He's connected to him for the rest of his career, hopefully, theoretically. And those guys are those guys have a little bit more long-term upside. None of these guys, none of these first four receivers have terrible downside for their rookie seasons. Johnson's making plays in camp through the first week. We knew that he would, but we could get excited about how the Chargers, who are already one of the highest pass rate teams in the league, they could be number one. They could, they could out-throw the Vikings, and that would be good for Quentin Johnston. And I think the Ravens are going to throw more than we're used to seeing them. And I think Say Flowers is their best receiver. And some of their teammates would agree with me based on how camp has gone. And they were saying that before camp. So I, I think this is a really good group to pick from. I'm almost happy. if, if Obviously, I want the 101 in my rookie-only drafts. But if I don't have it and I'm still picking within the first six picks, I'm a pretty happy camper because I know I'm going to get one of those receivers or if by some miracle Gibbs falls, I would get Gibbs there. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. These wide receivers, you know, it's almost amazing to me that Smith and the Jigba fell to where he did. Like if you think about last year, all the wide receivers 
came off the board in round one earlier than Jackson Smith and the Jigba went off the board, which is kind of wild because I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I like a lot of wide receivers from last year, but I thought Smith and the Jigba w- was as good as most of those guys. I get it. The concerns about not playing this past year, maybe slot only, you know, impacted that a little bit, but it's going to be fun to kind of watch this class. Is there one or two day two wide receivers, whether it's Jonathan Mingo, uh, Jaden Reed, Speaking of a guy who, who can't buzz, Jalen Hyatt has been generating as much buzz as probably yeah. had a rookie wide receiver so far. Uh, I'm forgetting some. We got Cedric Tillman. We got Hank Dell will be in that. Is there, is there one or two wide receivers from day two that you think could become a factor in fantasy at some point this year? I think Mingo, by terms of volume, could do it. Okay. I'm not necessarily gaga over his talent. I think he's a capable physical perimeter type of receiver. They'll line him up all over the place. It's almost like Frank Reich has a type when it comes to his wide receivers. And Mingo is kind of sort of like Michael Pittman. So maybe there's something there, just at least in terms of girth, uh, that they're, they're very similar. I know that Pittman is actually bigger than him. Um, I, I continue to be intrigued by Tank Dell. I know that he's diminutive, but the fact that CJ Stroud kind of campaigned for him after he was drafted by the Texans, the fact that they're buddies. Um, I think if Tank Dell were 20 pounds heavier, I'd be way more excited about him. But as it stands, I think he could be good in those best ball formats, and you can keep him in mind in those middle to late rounds. You didn't mention Rasheed Rice, and I know it's rare when a young wide receiver. I think, I don't know if I'm making a beeline to him on draft day. He'd be a late round flyer. But I, I always, I thought on his film, he just consistently had a nose for the end zone. And this will sound a little silly. I know he's six one and 200 pounds. I felt like he played bigger than that. And so I, I, I could see him being an occasional contributor for the Chiefs this year, a contested catch winner for them, and someone who develops down the line into being a good outside receiver who the Chiefs might need once Travis Kelsey opts to hang him up. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. And, and I think Rachel Rice... I feel like if I remember last year when I was studying him, I feel like his college listed numbers were more about what we thought he was. I feel like when I when I studied him last summer, like a lot of reports out there was like he was like six two two fifteen, and that's kind of how he plays. He plays more like almost like a six two two fifteen guy. And I remember eventually when yeah. the combine and the Senior Bowl rolled around, the measurements were a little surprising in terms of where they came in. But obviously, attached to Patrick Mahomes, you know. That's the dream scenario. If you develop a rapport with him and become a guy who's on the field a lot, uh, you know, that obviously can reap the benefits. Last question of the day, Dave. Uh, Tight ends. Same question I kind of been asking. Redraft, dynasty, is it the same? You know, we had four guys taken in the top 40-something picks, I think top 42 picks. Uh, Same guy in redraft and dynasty you're most excited about or different redraft to dynasty uh, long-term tight end? No, it's the same order for me, and it's Kincaid, and then Laporta, and then Mayer. Um, I think Kincaid was the fifth best pass catcher in this draft. And if you looked at him as a wide receiver, I would have put him behind the four wide receivers taken in round one. I think that he's got, the landing spot really won me over, and the fact that he can be a big slot for Buffalo. And Josh Allen, I know these stats off the top of my head because I studied slot receivers in Buffalo last year. He goes to the slot about 25% of the time on his throws. And so if that's going to be where Kincaid is, and he's already going to split tight end targets with Knox on top of it, I think that there's a chance for him to have a, a pretty nice season, especially for a rookie tight end. 
And I think he's got room to develop. Uh, on our podcast today, we mentioned how Gabe Davis is a free agent after this year. Could Kincaid be the number two option in this passing offense next year? I think the case could be made where he could be, and he could earn that role as soon as you know the midpoint of, of this coming season. So I'm bullish on him. Uh, I, I like the landing spot for Laporta. I think he's got a chance to really break out early on. You know, we've got this six-week head start where he's ahead of Jamison Williams, and I know he left camp practice a little bit early today. Hopefully he's fine. And if he's uh, if he's out there the first six games of the regular season, which I would hope that he is, he's got a chance to really separate and get himself some targets on a regular basis in an offense that's leaned on tight ends a pretty considerable amount. And so I think that Laporta can definitely um, be there for fantasy managers. And Mayer's a good talent, too. I just worry about how soon it'll be before he can be top two on the Raiders in targets. It, it might take a while. Part of his allure as a prospect was he was such a great blocker. And I just I just wonder if he's like another version of Cole Komet where the NFL teams will value him properly because he can do everything that they ask a tight end to do. But fantasy managers won't get the same type of performance. Yeah, I think this, I'm hoping this tight end group, which I was very high on, and the other guy there, Luke Musgrave, is actually the guy who I think might have the highest ceiling just based on his, his traits, but a little bit more time to develop. I'm kind of hoping this, this group of tight ends that we just kind of mentioned kind of gives a new influx of youth to that position, right? Because as Kelsey gets a little bit older and, you know, and as Kittle gets a little bit more up there in age, like it'd be nice if we have a new influx. Obviously, next year we're going to probably have a top 10 pick in tight end in Brock Bauer. So, like, maybe this year or next year we have a, a young influx that maybe we get past like four or five tight ends being relevant in fantasy. And that's a lot of the same. Uh, I think these guys down the line could develop into to, into some intriguing higher level tight end one type guys. It'll be fun to kind of track them. Dave, such a pleasure having you on again this year. Uh, picking your brain, talking about these rookies with you. Uh, so thanks again for hopping on the show. I'm sure a lot of my audience follows you guys and the work you're doing over there at CBS Sports. But anything, uh, let the audience know where they follow you. Anything you want to plug that's going on over there, uh, please do so. Yeah, sure. You know, Twitter or wh- whatever it's called now, <laughs> X, uh, at Dave Richard. Happy to interact with anybody who's got fantasy questions. And we've started producing our podcast live on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube.com, which I believe you're at now. Uh, If you're watching, search for Fantasy Football today, like it, subscribe to it, and we're we're live every morning uh, during the football season. And we've already started. And we have exclusive YouTube streams on top of that. And uh, just, just a great way to help you win your league. It's Fantasy Football Today on YouTube. Guys, make sure you're checking out Dave. Make sure you're checking out all the great work over there at CBS Sports Fantasy Football. Uh, it helps prepare you for the year. It sets you up, uh, gives you a lot of insights uh, to help you become a better fantasy player for sure. So on behalf of Dave, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.